0: Well, let me pray for the evening. I'd like to introduce you to Ryan. My friend Ryan is here to lead us in worship tonight. And so let me pray, and then um, we're going to start to worship God through song. Father God, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We thank you for this wonderful day that you've given us. Now we come before your throne of grace, and we're here to worship you, to remind ourselves of who you are, what you've done for us, and to also let you know how much we love you and we adore you. We reverence you. And we give you all the honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Well, good evening. Oh, there we are. Well, it's a privilege to be here. Um, And I hope that uh, tonight is just a time where we can reflect on what God's doing in our lives. Uh, I hope this evening these songs are not about what we're singing on a screen but what he's doing in our hearts and how we can respond. So I'm going to invite you, if you if you want to stand and sing, you can. If you want to stay seated and can. If you worship God best by eating a donut, go for it. This is uh, less about the form, <laughs> all about what we're doing. But I want to start out by sharing uh, a verse, or rather a couple, that I've, uh, I've really come to enjoy. It's Colossians 3.16. Well, maybe some of you guys know it, but... Uh, 16, 17, it says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And verse 17, says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of Je- uh, Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So... In preparation for this uh, for this evening, you know, I just sat at the piano and just started praying and asking God what to sing. And and he, he gave us a, a, a mishmash of things. So tonight we're going to do some hymns. We're going to do some newer songs. Um, if you know them, please sing out. Otherwise, let's just let the word of Christ dwell richly in us. Amen.
2: is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. All is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me.
1: Won't you have your way in this soul The night is dark. The night is dark.
2: But I am not forsaken, for by my side, the Savior, He will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, and in my need, His power is displayed. To this I hold, to this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley, He will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. No fate, no fate I dread. I know I am forgiven. The future, sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon. And he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus, now and ever is my plea. Oh, the claims I released, I can sing. I am free, and not I, but through Christ in me. With every breath, come on. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus. When the race is complete, when the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, and not I, but through Christ in me, yet not I, but through Christ. All I have needed, Thy hand hath provided. Great is Thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Pardon for sin.
1: Grateful to Him, to him now. Could just be as simple as saying, "Thank you, God, for giving me a day to wake up to." <laughs> Heaven that I love. In chapter five, it says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength, and honor, and glory, and praise then I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell and they worshiped may our hearts be that kind of posture tonight
2: You give life You are love You bring light To the darkness You give hope You restore Every heart That is broken Great are you Lord It's your breath in our lungs It's your breath in our lungs So we pour out our praise We pour out our praise It's your breath In our lungs So we pour out our praise You only Great are you Lord
1: You give life
2: You give life You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. You are great. Great are you, Lord. It's your breath. It's your breath. will sing, great are you, Lord. Come on, church. And all the earth will shout your praise, our hearts will cry, these bones will sing,
1: do here tonight be pleasing in your sight, God. May our hearts be open and receptive to what you have to say. May our ears be listening, God, for the words your spirit wants to speak to us. May your spirit speak through Tom and your words this evening, God. Just have your way. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you so much, Ryan. Well, we continue on our journey through the Bible tonight. I invite you to uh, grab your Bible or your phone or whatever you use to uh, look into God's Word tonight. I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we will be. And we're going to be um, finishing this book we've been in. In it for a number of weeks, and uh, tonight we're going to wrap it up. So, I want to remind you that uh, chapter 6 really kind of begins where chapter 5 ended. And again, we have all these chapters and verses that people have included to help us navigate the scripture, but really, um, what we're going to begin with tonight really was is a continuation of of where we ended last week. And so, in uh, chapter 5, we began to uh, look at what does it mean to live this Christian life that Paul has been telling us in the first three chapters. And so, one of the things is it's a spirit-filled life. He says in chapter 5, verse 13, that do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And so, he's been talking about how we live this life practically, day to day, in relationship to one another and others. And so he began in chapter 5 by reminding us that we need to love each other, we need to encourage each other. And then he, uh, towards the end of chapter 5, he begins talking about specific relationships and really talking about the family unit. He began with one, uh, probably the chief relationship between a husband and a wife. With a spouse, and so he, uh, we found out that really, a husband and a wife should have mutual respect for each other. They should submit to one another. It's not that one is over the other, because they're not. They are equal. Um, they are equally created. But there is, but God has given the man a responsibility and he's given a woman responsibility. And together, when they can submit to, together to each other, love each other, the husband love the wife, and the wife respect the husband, then they can be such a great force. At really, and in fact, Paul talks about that that's an example of the church, of the church of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the groom and we as the church are the bride. And we see how Jesus loved us by how the husband should love the wife. And it says that the husband um, and that Jesus gave his life for the church. And that's what the husband should do is give his life for his wife. And in response, we as the church should respect Jesus and that we should um, submit to him and what he wants to do in our lives just as the wife submits to the husband In that role. But again, it's a mutual submission. It's not one over the other. And um, when the power play comes into effect, then things get wrong and things get out of whack. And so God wants us to be united. And so he continues, Paul continues now as we get to chapter six with that same concept that relationally we should respect one another. And different relationships. So we see the husband and the wife. And now as we start chapter 6, we see the relationship between children and parents. And so um, if you'll read with me, let's read the first four four verses of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So children, obey your parents. That word obey isn't just a one-time shot. It isn't that children should just obey them, their parents one time, but it's a continual attitude of being obedient to the to the parent and again, submitting to them, respecting them, that's what the word honor means, and we'll get to that a little more in a moment. But children are supposed to obey the parents, and so as I was studying, it was kind of hard because um, we all are children, that's how we got here, so we've all children, and we all still be, when we're still children, if our parents are still alive, but we always, we play the role of the children, and if we're parents, once a parent, always a parent, once a child, always a child. Um... But uh, I forgot where I was going with that. But that's okay. It'll come back to me in a moment. But, oh, I remember, there's really no younger kids here. So trying to uh, see how to to talk about this. But um, we have many parents in here, many grandparents. And so children, obey your parents. We all know that children, it's not their natural makeup to obey their parents. Just like all of us. We're all born with this sin nature. We have a pride. We, have, we want our own will. We want our own way. And so children need to be instructed, need to be guided to obey their parents. It's not something that they naturally do. And so as parents, we begin setting up boundaries for them. And we begin helping them understand what it means to obey. But let's look at what it is. It's, it's not obedience out of obedience sake. They're not just to obey you just because you're the parents. That's part of it. But look at what it says there in verse 1. Obey your parents in the Lord. And so we need to be instructing children that it's about doing it in the Lord. And that's actually what he's been talking about through the whole book of Ephesians. That it's everything that we do is in the Lord. And we're going to see that phrase again here in a few minutes. But it's children, obey your parents in the Lord. It's not just about the rules and regulations, but it's about doing it for the Lord because that pleases him. And look at the next phrase it says, for this is right. This is the right thing to do. So we can see um, four reasons why children should be, obey the parents. The first one is, I just said, it is because it's right it's the basic principle built into the very structure of family life that those who are younger, they're, uh, they're immature only because they're growing up. They're um, impulsive. They're inexperienced in life. And so they should submit to the authority of their parents who are older and wiser to help them um, in life. And hopefully, um, when we were children... If we listen to our parents, sometimes listening to, always listening to parents can sure save us a lot of grief. And sometimes that doesn't happen. But that's kind of the way the Lord, um, God set it up, is that the parents, the ones that have experienced more life than the child, can hopefully let the child know, hey, this is what to stay away from. This is what not to do. And if we as children, when we were there and we have children, do that, it can save them a lot of heartache and grief, and they can move past a lot of things that would um, could could harm them. Um, second of all, we see that um, it's scriptural. So, verse two there, where it says, "Honor your father and mother," you see, it says, which is the first commandment with a promise, and we find this in um, Exodus chapter twenty, verse twelve. It's in the Ten Commandments. It's the fifth commandment, which says, Honor your father and mother. And this is the first commandment with a promise. It's also the first commandment that is the relational side of the commandments. They're split kind of in half there. Also in Deuteronomy 5.16, Moses, as he was teaching the children of Israel before he passed on, he told them the Ten Commandments again. And so we see it there again. And so we see that it's a promise, there's the first command with a promise, and it's a promise of blessing, it's a promise of, of uh, long life, um, though it could, mean, it could mean someone actually lives long, but more than that, it also just means that by honoring and obeying your parents, you, again, as I said, you can uh, dodge the bullets of life. You can dodge the potholes and you can have a life that is much more enjoyable than going through the struggles of life. The third thing is um, that it's best in the best interest of the child. It may go well with you. So we mentioned that. And also obedience promotes a full life. You may live long on the earth. So we looked at that. Now, verse 1 really talks to children that are still in the home. From that birth through, for us in the, us in, in, in the States, 18, right? 18, supposedly, all kids become an adult, and they can uh, spread their wings and go off on their own and begin creating a life of their own. So it's really, this verse is talking about obeying parents while you're in the home, while you're growing up the uh, primary ages, and the teenage er, er, uh, years, and then verse 2, honor your fathers and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it will go well with you. You may live long on the earth. Like I said, once a child, always a child, and so there's that time of life when we all left the home, and some of us left on better terms than others. Some of us had great relationships with our parents. Some of us were maybe a little bumpy. And so regardless of that, we all know, I remember as a teenager, my parents would say something and I'd roll my eyes. And I remember, you know, wanting to spread my wings, you know, instead of my father just holding the screwdriver and fixing whatever needed to be fixed. It's like, yo, hand it to me. Let me do my thing. Let me be... In life, and let me go about what I want to do, and so, and that is all natural, right? That's how God um, designed it, and so as a young person begins to get older, that's what they want to begin doing: is spreading their wings, and beginning finding out what do I like, what do I don't like, what is life all about. And sometimes, yes, they get bumped and they get bruised. But again, that's why parents are there as a safety net to help them through those things and help them through the relationships that they're going to have with other people um, as they're going through school or their first job and helping them understand how to navigate that, how to go to college, all of those things. Um, But regardless of our age, whether we're 35, whether we're 40, As long as we have parents, God wants us to honor our father and our mother. And that word honor is simply to respect them and to give them uh, uh, the respect, the honor, the gratitude that they deserve. And um, so sometimes that's not easy. Sometimes that's hard. Again, as I said, we all had different relationships with our parents. But God still wants us to give them the honor that they deserve, even if they weren't the best, even if they made mistakes. And, of course, we know all of us make mistakes. And so they did the best that they could. They tried to navigate life as they were navigating their own life and trying to help raise um, children. And so we want to give them honor. And for some of you, depending on the age of your parents, some of you have, still have parents that are older. Some of you, your parents have moved on. But the, the best honor that we can do is now helping our parents as they get to the end of their life, as they come to the golden year, so to speak. And so I encourage you to honor. And I know that for me, I had to do that with my own parents. My sister carried most of the weight um, because they lived with her and I lived in a different state. But still went and regardless tried to help my parents in their in their in their years and so that's hard work, especially if they're not well and making sure they get the right medications, making sure they get to doctor's appointments, making sure that they have the best life that they can um, till the very end until they go hopefully be with Jesus and so there there is honor. There and so verse two, verse one is talking about those ch- kids in the in the home. Verse two is talking about adult children and how we can still honor, and as we do that, God will honor us as we take care of them, as we give them the respect and honor that they deserve. Well, verse four, Paul now turns to the parent. So it says fathers, but it's really talking about parents. Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Do not provoke your children to anger. In other words, make it easy on your kids. Don't put so many roadblocks in their way that you frustrate them in just enjoying life. Now, there still needs to be some uh, boundaries and some guidelines and some rules, but don't make it about the rules. Don't create hurdles that they have to jump over. Do this or that, and that's the end of it. And it's only about the rule. That can end up frustrating the children. And so we want to make sure as parents that we're trying to encourage them to uh, life and not frustrate them and feel like they're being held back or have handcuffs on them. And so I thought of um, three ways here, a few ways here that parents can frustrate their children. So one way is when parents are harsh and unreasonable. Again, that idea of speaking to them harshly or uh, being unreasonable in what you're asking them to do. And so... The, um, and I know I struggled with that. I have to sometimes remind myself, my, my wife would remind me to listen to my tone of voice. And, you know, it's, it's easy. Kids uh, do things and we're in a hurry and we're trying to get dinner ready or we're trying to get them to school or we're trying, please do your homework now or whatever the situation is. And it's easy to snap and all of us are different. Some of you may not have struggles with that. But it's to be talking to them tenderly, not talking to them harshly, reminding so that they know that you care for them, that you love them. And so that even when you do have to come and say, oh, we crossed the line, they still understand how you love them and how you care for them. The second thing, kind of mentioned on this, um, we can frustrate our children when obedience is only about keeping the rules the rule must be attached to fact that the children are obeying their parents in the Lord. And so um, it's important. In fact, the book of De- Deuteronomy tells us that we should train our children and put keep the words of God before their heart before their eyes and be teaching them about who God is and what he's done and teaching them what God how God expects us to live versus how he doesn't want us to live and so if we need to combine our rules with who God is and his character so that they understand by following the rule, it isn't just about the rule itself, and so you, you uh, cross the line, that's it, you're done, and make them feel guilty, but help them understand and guide them to what maybe caused them to make the mistake and then help guide them back into the path of restoration and love so that that encourages them to, uh, to stay the course and do better next time. So, and, again, that they're doing it in the Lord. Again, it's not just about the rules. It's about their relationship with God and helping them understand who God is. Josh McDowell said this, rules without relationships equals rebellion. You can't raise children with just rules. You must guide, not block your children. Guide rather than block them. And so when we come, when we're about just the rules, that's setting up a block. And they don't know how to navigate around that all the time. But if we have a relationship with them where we're loving them and encouraging them, then that encourages them to do better. And the last way that we can um, frustrate and frustrate our children and cause them to to, uh, be angry is when authority is used inappropriately. That we as the parent, we overstep our bounds. Again, as I said earlier, there there's lots in life that, you know, you got to get to this appointment, and you got to go here, and you got to go to school, and hey, we got to eat, finish your dinner because we've got bedtime or you've got homework, and so um, it's not about exercising my authority so that they'll obey. And it's not about exercising my authority for my sake because I don't have the patience to allow them to make the changes. But my authority, the purpose of my authority is I'm doing it for the development of my children. And if we can keep that in the forefront of our minds as parents or as grandparents that we're wanting these children to develop and to grow in the Lord. Then we won't overstep our bounds and stay away from things that might cause them to be frustrated. Now in the verse we're looking at, the second part of this verse says, verse 4 says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That phrase, bring them up, means bringing their character along turning them in the right direction, influencing them for good. And so that's what bringing them up, again, as Deuteronomy tells us, teach them who God is, teach them what God has said, let them understand why we are on this earth and why God created, why God loves us, why you love them, because they're uniquely created in the image of God, and God has a purpose for their life. And we want to do everything that we can as parents to nurture that, to develop that, and to help them uh, then spread their wings when it is time for them to move on. And so let's look at those words, discipline and instruction. Um, Again, discipline or nurture. Some translations translate that nurture. The whole idea is to be tender, guiding them, be their coach, help funnel them, In the right direction. Now I also want to say discipline. Um, There is also the the side of discipline where there's correction. Um, When I was growing up, and even when I read God's word and I'd see the word discipline, for me that was always a negative thing. It was always about, well, what did I do wrong now? It wasn't about, what can I change to do better it was a lot of it, it. was I did something wrong again. I felt guilty. I didn't feel like I measured up, okay. I felt like I was always getting um, quote unquote corrected. and so um, I do want to say that there is discipline, but i want you I want to encourage you to think about this word in this way: discipline discipline isn't always about. Correcting something that you did wrong. Discipline is all actually about self-control. Discipline is about controlling whatever you're doing so that you can accomplish a task. Okay? Playing the piano is a discipline. There's certain ways to do it. And so when, when people start learning for the first time, the teacher's going to sit there and tell them, you don't play with your hands like this, flat. you got to curve your fingers so that you can play properly. They teach you how to properly press the notes. They teach you how to do it evenly so that you're getting even music instead of all this gibberish. So so playing the piano is a discipline and if you go into mo if you were to walk into any collegiate music school, what you would hear a lot coming from the practice rooms as you walked up and down the hall is young people playing scales and playing exercise. They're not playing big concertos or Bach and well actually they could be playing Bach inventions because those are exercises but you know they're not playing Beethoven or Brahms that's not what they're practicing they're practicing the discipline of how to play because then once they've nailed the discipline of playing the piano now they can play all that wonderful music. And it's the same thing with any Im- instrument. Uh, violin. Many of you know my wife plays violin. And not only is she a good player, but she's also an exceptional teacher. And sometimes we'll go places and she'll see uh, kids playing the violin and she'll go, oh, I just want to get a hold of them. Because they'll." she'll see their hand doing something and she knows that she can help them to be better. But it's a discipline. And when when... When kids come to her for her to to learn the violin, the first thing she's doing is how you hold the bow, how you hold the violin. And um, in fact, you don't even hold the violin with your hand. You hold it with your chin. Okay, and so that's where the violin is. But if you don't hold it with your chin, you can't play it because you need your hand to be free in order to play it. But those are the things that she would teach and they spend weeks and weeks and months and months just getting the basics. It's the same in sports. Maybe you played sports, right? We've always heard that the teams that um, make it to the championship games are the ones that nailed the basics and the fundamentals of that sport. And so I encourage you to think of Disciplined that way, so it's helping children master life. It's helping them have self-control and patience and being kind and talking in the right way so that they can have a successful life instead of just, stop that. Don't do that anymore. So they still need guard, guardrails. They still need to do it, but it's doing it tenderly. It's being the coach. It's funneling them in the right direction. Instruction in this verse means warning, admonition. So there are times when we need to warn children, when they need to be warned, because kids do need boundaries. They need guardrails. And so there is time to be warned. But again, how are we doing it? Are we doing it tenderly? There's time to be firm but then there's also time to be tender and help them. So the bottom line of parenting, and the most important thing I want you to remember is this, is that kids receive life guidance in the Lord. What kind of children do you want when they all grow up? An NBA basketball player? basketball player, a concert pianist, a carpenter? Or do you want a precious person that is full of integrity, kindness, patience, and honest and loyal and a worshiper of Jesus? At some point as a parent, at some point as a grandparent, it is important to have the Jesus talk. Tell them about Jesus who He is, what He did for us on the cross and through His resurrection. Invite them to make Jesus their Lord and Savior. It's not enough that they attend church, memorize Scripture through wanna, etc. All of those are great things and important things to have your kids involved in. So I'm not putting that down at all. But that's not enough. The Gospel needs to be clearly explained and an opportunity to accept it. We need to have a conversation about what it means to come to Jesus. And that's how God intended it from the very beginning is that this whole message of who He is, what He's done for us, how He's uniquely created each one of us was meant to happen in the family unit. That the parents would know who Jesus is and know who God is, and then would pass that on to their children, who would then pass that on to their children, who would then pass that on to their children. And of course, we all completely understand what happened. Sin got involved. But it's still God's plan. And it's still His plan. And I can't prove this from Scripture, but I believe there's going to be family units in heaven when we get there. God never changes. So, encourage you as parents to raise your kid and be tender with them, nurture them, guide them as a child, honor your father and mother. That's what Paul's talking about this. Well, let's look at the next verses, 5 through 9. Paul carries on one more time this whole idea of a relationship, and this time it's between the Bible, of course, uses slaves and masters. Today we use the word employee-employer relationship. So that's what verses 5 through 9 are talking about, the relationship. How should the employee relate to the employer? How should the employer relate to the employee? So let's read verses 5 through 9. Slaves, be obedient to those who... Are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And and masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. don't know if you notice, a lot of similar phrases. We see, again, the idea of being obedient. We see the idea of uh, not being threatening, the idea of in the Lord. And so really, he just continues this idea. And so basically, whatever relationship we're in, Paul's saying, listen, submit to one another. Respect one another. So let's see this. So we, I'm going to be using the word employee because that's how it affects us. Some of us are employees. Some of us are employers. Some of us have held both at some point in our lives. But it says, be obedient to those who... Are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling? Now that word fear and trembling doesn't mean you have to be afraid of, of those that are in authority over you. Again, the word fear and the word trembling is just with respect, with the proper honor that an employer deserves. And the idea of being obedient is this. Do your job. You know what your job is? Do it. That's all that an employer wants, Right? They just want the job done. Now, they can see this big picture. We as employees see only this part, which is whatever part we're responsible for. And so as an employee, I would encourage you, take off those blinders as much as you can. Try to see what's going on wherever you work, if you're still working. What's going on? What is the main purpose of Whatever company you're at, or whatever you do, what is the goal? What is the employer desiring to see happen? What is the end result? And the more we can do that is the better we can do that. In the sincerity of your heart, just the idea of just be sincere. Be authentic. Don't be a fake and don't try to cut corners. Just do the job and do it to the best of your ability. And then you also see there in verse 6 that idea of eye service as men pleasers. It's God doesn't want us to be doing our, our jobs that He has given us just when the boss is there looking over our shoulder or in the room or in the warehouse or wherever you work or on the job site. We need to be, especially as God's representatives, we need to be doing our best at all times um whether the boss is there or not. And so that's that whole idea of uh not and we're not doing it for the lord again we're but as slaves of christ doing the will of god from the heart. And so god gave us that job and it's his will for us to do it to the best that we can and again just as children should obey their parents as their as unto the Lord, with the Lord in mind, those of us that are employees should be doing our job for the Lord and that that is our ultimate goal. And as we're doing it for the Lord and doing the best that we can, we will also fulfill the responsibility of the employer. So we're not doing it for men. We're doing it for the Lord. That's who we're representing to Him. And we know that, that uh, He will give back to us whether we are the employer or the employee. And then it's similar for those that are employees. Basically, it says do the same thing. Respect your employee. Don't be overburdened on them. Don't ask them to do unrealistic things, but respect them for the time that they're giving and um, respect them for what they're doing for you and for the company. Because again, we know that our master... In heaven is master of both. And so that's basically what that's doing is uh, talking about the respect that we need to have both ways, doing our best, always doing things as unto the Lord. Well, that brings us to verse 10. And basically, he's finished there with that relationship, um, with all the relationships. And he says this in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So, Paul arrives to the end of his letter and says, I have one final word for you. So, let's remind ourselves again about this letter. Because Paul's final words are in relation to everything he has written so far in the first five and a half chapters. And so in the first three chapters, if you remember, Paul is telling us who we are in Christ, who we are in him. He's um, he's telling us what Christ did for us, that he's given us all of the spiritual blessing, that we are saved through grace by our faith in him. He's talking about how much God loves us and how great and mighty God is. So we see more of the theology of who God is and what He's done for us, and then in the second half, chapters four and five, um, and this the first part of six, it's now how do we apply that in life? And we saw that that we're to love others, we're to be filled with the Spirit, we're to have respect and 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 honor in all of the types of our relationships, and so. Um, Basically, what it looks like to be a spirit-filled Christ follower is what he's been sharing with us up to this point. And we see in Ephesians 5.18, as I quoted earlier, he tells us, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. So because we are in Christ, because we now know how to act as spirit-filled Christ followers, Paul says, be strong in the Lord And in the power of his might. And what he's reminding us again, as we've seen, he's used this phrase before, in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord, is that God needs to be the center and complete focus of our lives. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 15, verses 4 and 5? Jesus said this. He said, "...abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine." So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So apart from being plugged in with Jesus, we can't do anything. We're just going to fall flat on our face. And so we've got to be plugged in and abide in God, abide in his word, and then um, we will bear much fruit. Habakkuk 3.19 says, The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. So be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We lean into Jesus We trust in the Lord with all our heart. We don't lean on our own understanding. In everything we do, we acknowledge the Lord, and we do everything for His honor and glory. Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Look at verse 11, because now Paul tells us how to yet do that as well. He says, put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. We all are pretty familiar with that the Christian life is not all peaches and cream. Is not always all blissful. And we run up against roadblocks. We run into storms. We run into problems. We are at war. That's what Paul's telling us. It's great now that you know who you are in Christ. It's great that you know how to practically live it out. But the final thing that you have to realize is that we are in a war. We are not fighting any human being. We're not fighting each other in Christendom. We're not fighting people outside of Christendom. They are not our problem. They are not our enemy. He clearly says there in verse uh, 12, we struggle not against flesh and blood. So, the last time I checked, you can pinch yourself, and if you feel it, you're flesh and blood. Okay? And... If you can uh, you know, go from here to the back of the room without touching the floor, then we'll have a conversation. But most of us have to walk between here and there. So we are flesh and blood. That's not who we're fighting. And let's be honest. It's so easy to get our attention on the wrong thing. And we've all done it. Where we get our wires crossed with somebody. And we think, well, that's a problem. Now, it doesn't mean that that doesn't have to be resolved. It doesn't mean that something didn't come up that maybe needs working on or whatever, but they're not our real problem. Our real problem is sin in both my life and your life and the other person that you may be in relationship with. The problem is that we have an enemy, and so we are not fighting with anyone that is in Christendom or out, we have one foe. And this verse tells us his name is the devil. We can't see him with our physical eyes, but we can see the results of his schemes. We can feel the pressure of his temptations and the result of his lies. And Jesus called him the father of lies, He can't, there is no truth in him. He cannot speak the truth at all. He lies. Everything he says is a lie. Jesus also called him a thief. Where in the book of John, Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what the devil's trying to do. Steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, but I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And... Satan was the top angel that God had created. His name was Lucifer. And he was in charge of everything in heaven. And yet there was pride found in his heart. And he decided that he could do things better than God. He wanted to be God. That was his problem. He wanted to be God. And he said, I will make my throne above the Most High. Well, he found out real quick that that was the wrong thing to say. And so there was a big battle in heaven. He got kicked out. Unfortunately, he also took a bunch of angels with him. And so he um, wanted to be like God. And then think about what happened. Then God created heaven and he created earth. And he put this species called man On the earth. And he gave man authority and a free will. Exactly what Satan wanted. Satan wanted authority. And so we can see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3 where God said, subdue the earth to man. And and to Adam and Eve, take authority over it. Be responsible for it. You have my authority. And so Satan comes in and does everything that he can. What does he do? Again, he can do nothing but lie. And so he first thing he did was try to uh, help Eve understand, did God really say? And that's what he keeps saying today. When he comes to us, to temptation, no matter what it is or with problems, he's always saying, did God really say? Did God really say what you f- believe that he said in his word? That's what he's doing. And he's a liar. And he's about scheming. And we know that the New Testament tells us that he is like a roaring lion. And he goes around seeing whom he can devour. That's what he's looking for. And he's doing everything that he can because he wants to be worshipped. He wants to have authority and he wants to control but praise God, he's defeated. And he's going to get his due justice soon. So, the devil rules the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of darkness is well organized. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 lays out, lays out the ranking system. We see evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. We see mighty powers in this dark world, which would be the planet Earth. And we see evil spirits in heavenly places. We get a little better understanding of this um, ranking system um, in the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, chapter 10, Daniel was praying to God for wisdom. He was looking for direction. He was looking for understanding. And he prayed to God, asking God, to um, help him understand what he needed to do and understand the situation. And um, we see that finally an angel appeared to him to give Daniel the the answer to his prayer. And in Daniel 10, verses 12 and 13, this is what the angel says. The angel finally comes to Daniel, taps him on the shoulder and says, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. Now that should encourage us. The very first time that Daniel prayed, God heard and he answered. And God will do the same for us. When we pray, he's not holding against us. He will answer us. He will give us an answer. So be encouraged there. But what happened? What was the holdup? find my place uh, to respond and I have come in response to your words. Verse 13 of Daniel 10 says, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. So here this angel runs into the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And for 21 days he has this fight and this battle. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, or the chief, one of the chief angels, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. And so what this is telling us is that in the heavenly somewhere, God said, Angel, go give this answer to Daniel. He Goes immediately. And yet he runs into this spiritual darkness force of authority in the heavenlies. And he fights with them for 21 days. Hollywood can't even match whatever that fight was. But it would be... Anyway, we'll just leave that there. But it's just a spiritual battle. This isn't the king of Persia here on earth that he was fighting. He was fighting... A spiritual authority of the kingdom of darkness. And then in verse 20 of Daniel 10, the angel goes on. He also says, after he tells Daniel what the answer is and all of that, he says, I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. And so he's talking about again, another spiritual force that was over the kingdom of Greece. The first one was over the king of Persia. And so there's all this stuff going on around us that we are completely unaware. We have no idea what's going on, but it is going on. There is a battle raging around us all the time. And so that's why in verse 13, look with me at verse 13, Paul goes on and says, therefore, because of all these spiritual authorities and darknesses in the world because of the devil's scheme. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And by the way, the evil day is today. It's not coming tomorrow, but it is tomorrow, it is today, and it was yesterday. So that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. In other words, take on the armor of God so that you can stand firm, so that you can come against all of these things that Satan wants to throw our way. So let me interject here before we look at these pieces of our armor. Yes, we are in a spiritual battle, but we do not have to be afraid. The devil is a defeated foe. Jesus Defeated death, hell, and the grave when he was crucified and rose from the grave. Satan was completely stripped of any power or authority that he gained from Adam's high treason. 1 John 4:4. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Talking about Jesus in us, Satan in the world. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear. God doesn't want us to be afraid. God has nothing to do with fear. He has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And so, we don't have to be afraid. He is a defeated foe. Having said that, we don't stand firm in our own strength. We can't come against him. We can't stand against him in our own strength. He will whoop us up one side and down the other. But as long as we are have the armor of God on us, because Jesus whooped him up one side and down the other, we get to as well. And he's a defeated foe and he has absolutely no power and the victory is ours. So, let's look at this armor. <clears throat> the armor consists of a belt. Breastplate, shoes, shield, helmet, and a sword. Ephesians, look at with me in verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So the first piece of our armor that Paul lists is truth. That's the first piece. It holds everything together. It's the belt of truth. Okay, so it holds all of our armor together. It keeps everything from falling down. Satan is the father of lies and he has always been asking the question, did God really say? That is why it is very important to know what God's word says. While Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane before his death, he prayed this for us. Praying for us. He said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. God told Joshua when he took over for Moses in Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. And then in John 8.32, Jesus said, You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That's why truth is right here in the center. It's the core thing, just like our muscles and our stomach here are really the core of our whole body. And if these are all nicely in shape, it keeps our upper body and our lower body strong and able to function in the proper way. And so we have to base our Christian life on truth. And we already see that Jesus called, said to the Father, your word is truth. And so we need to know what the Bible says. We need to know what it says about God, what it says about mankind, what it says about all of these things that we're taking because we need to stand on truth. And when Satan comes and onslaughts us and asks the question, did God really say we can stand in truth because we know what God says and we're not, we're not allowing ourselves to turn to the left or the right and chasing this thought or that thought, but we're staying centered on who God is, what He's done, and what His Word says. The second piece of our armor is righteousness. It protects the inner organs, primarily the heart. This is the definition of righteousness. Righteousness is being in right standing with God. Everything between you and God has been made right. There is no longer any hostility between you and God. He has completely wiped our sin away. He has completely made us into new creatures. We're not the same people on the inside. I look the same on the outside. Sometimes I act as badly as I used to. But inside, I'm new. I'm different. And so God is constantly changing us from the inside out. But the devil, he's an accuser. And he wants to accuse you of what you've done. And when you know that you are clothed with the righteousness of God, and you know that God's not angry at you anymore, his wrath was put on Jesus, and you accepted that so that you wouldn't have to have the full brunt of his, of his wrath. That's what righteousness is. So when the devil tries to accuse you or make you feel guilty for your past, you remind him that God is not angry with you anymore. God's wrath has been satisfied. You are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. You are part of God's family now. And you have every right to come boldly to God's throne of grace because he invites us to do so. And so it's all because of what Jesus did. The third piece of armor is the gospel of peace. The gospel is good news. The angels declared it at Jesus' birth. They said, I bring you good news that will be for all people. And then when all those angels came, they declared glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Our preparation is knowing the gospel and being able to communicate it to people that need to hear it. And so that's why that goes on our feet. And so we should be about always advancing. If you, if you remember, you know, the Roman soldiers, what did they do? Not only did they fight, not only did they stand, but they also pressed on. And they brought whatever Rome wanted, they brought into whatever country they were invading. And so... Um, it's a defensive, but it's also an offensive uh, weapon as well. That we want to continually to take ground and let people know the good news of the gospel. We want them to know that He is pleased. And so Isaiah fifty-two-seven says, "How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness." who announces salvation and says to Zion your God reigns. And in Romans chapter 10, the apostle Paul quotes part of that verse, but before he quotes that verse, he says, how then will they call on Jesus in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they pr- how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And that's part of our job, is to bring that good news of peace. That God's not angry anymore. God's not upset at you. God loves you and God desires to have a relationship with you. We're supposed to be about peace. The fourth piece is faith. And it's the shield that covers our entire body. So if you have a shield here, and you're standing over here, uh uh-uh, get behind that shield. It's the shield of faith. And our faith in God will put out, notice what it says, all fiery darts. Every single fiery dart that the devil can throw at us, the shield of faith as we keep trusting in God and believing in Him, they will catch every fiery dart that, he, that the devil wants to, sh- to throw at us. 1 John 5, 4, For whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It's our faith that overcomes the world. It's our faith in Jesus that gives us the victory in this life that we all desire. Faith is the firm confidence in the Lord and in His Word. When temptations burn, when circumstances are adverse, when doubts assail, when shipwrecks threaten, faith looks up and says, I believe in God. Salvation is the next piece. It protects our mind. It's on our head. The helmet of salvation. The mind is where the enemy can hit the hardest. It's the mind where doubt can come. It's the mind that can bring begin to worry about things, sometimes to the point that we misconstrue what is really going on. Doubts and worries can turn to fear. Fear can grip the heart, and before we know it, we can fall apart. Wondering where God is to the point of being completely crippled. However, when we know that our salvation comes from from God, it is He who has saved us. We can stand and never be intimidated or discouraged by difficulty, danger, or disappointment. No matter how hot the battle gets, assurance of eventual deliverance will preserve us from retreating or surrendering. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And then we see the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is where knowing the Word of God and having it memorized is important. The psalmist said, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. If we don't know what God's Word says, we have no idea what's going to displease Him or what's going to cause us to get out of sync with Him. And of course, the best example in wielding our sword of the Spirit is Jesus Himself. In the Gospels, when he when Satan came to Him, Jesus had been uh, fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and Satan shows up and he starts throwing all this big barrage of temptations and things and circumstances and things that um, who's trying to knock Jesus down and knock him off of his feet. But notice, every time Jesus tempted Jesus, Jesus said this, It is written, it is written, it is written. Now notice, this is important. Jesus didn't just take the whole Bible and throw it in Satan's face. Okay? Jesus use specific portions of God's Word that address the temptation or the situation that Satan brought up. And it's the same in our our lives. When Satan comes, he brings up a specific issue, whatever that may be. And so take the time to find out what God's Word has to say. Take the time to plant that Word in your heart by memory and to remember it and so that um, what does God's word say about worry, doubt, fear, his provision, his protection, his peace, how we should worship him, etc., etc. And so when Satan comes to us, we should be able to quote God's word and say, thus says the Lord, thus says God's word. And I know it because it happened to me this afternoon. Okay. And so, my scripture this afternoon was, God never leaves me nor forsakes me. Hebrews chapter 13. So therefore, I boldly and confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. It took a few minutes. But it left. But it left. Are you having problems with worry? We all do at times. Philippians chapter 2 says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Don't be anxious about anything. But in prayer and supplication let your requests be made known unto God and then the peace of God which passes all understanding will surround your heart and your mind. Will set up garrison around your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Whatever is worthy of thinking about, think on these things and the God of peace will be with you. Please, I'm not showing off. That's years of planting God's Word. But that's how we need to be. We need to be able to, whatever the situation, the storms of life come, we should be able to rapid fire back at our enemy just the way he tries to rapid fire at us. And we should... um, be able to stand there firm. That's what God wants us to do. And that's what all this armor does from the head to the shoes, helmet, breastplate, belt, shoes, shield, sword. That's how we have victory. That's how we stay strong in the Lord. And it's something that we've got to do every day. We've got to get up every day and put God's armor on and put it into practice. And in fact, the next verse, if you look at with with me, verses 18 to 20, Paul goes on and he says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert. Did you see that? Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth so that I can preach boldly. But I want to point out this as we wrap up our time here is to be alert. It's very easy as a Christ follower to get lazy. And sometimes that laziness isn't intended. We get up and we all have things we've got to do. Life starts. The kids call for our attention. The wife calls for attention. We woke up late and yikes, am I going to make it to work on time? I got to get to work on time. And then, oh, I got to run someone to, the, to an appointment or I have an appointment or, or it, the list goes on and on and on. And so it's important that we are intentional, that we're always on the alert. And as I quoted earlier, be on the alert because your foe, Satan, as a roaring lion, is trying to look for who he can devour. But you have the victory. I have the victory. We have the victory. And look at also what it says: it says, be alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We need to be praying for each other. Prayer works. Prayer works. And the other day, I shot up a text to someone and said, please pray, here's what's going on. And that, along with me, staying focused on God and speaking His Word to the situation, again, it didn't take too long until the pressure of life, the pressure that the enemy was trying to put me under, began to fade, began to get a clear head, and was able to move on with my day. So pray, 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 and be bold about it. And it says pray with all types of prayers. And it also says pray in the Spirit. And so allow the Spirit of God to lead you in your prayers. Say, God, what should I pray for? For with this situation, how should I pray here? How should I pray there? And then take a moment to be silent and allow him to lead you. He might lead you to a scripture to pray over that situation or person or whatever is going on. But allow the Holy Spirit to get involved in your prayers. And then we see in the last few verses, Paul wraps it up. And he basically, um, this is the last time he communicates. With the, with the people in Ephesus and he sends a young man um, Ty- Tychicus I think is how you say his name um, anyway he's sending them he's sending this young man who he said is a beloved brother and a faithful minister of the Lord to help them know and give a report on how Paul's doing and what Paul is doing and again we know that Paul is in chains during this time and he um, is still being faithful. He's still being an ambassador for Christ. He's still preaching the gospel, and he's encouraging the believers all around. So may we know who God is. May we know who we are in Christ, in Him. May we live out what He's asked us to live out and how to love one another, respect one another mutually, how to support one another And how to be obedient in the situations that we need to be in. But then, every day, put the armor of God on. And allow His armor, which He gives you, to protect you. And by the way, last comment, all your armor is in the front. You don't have anything in the back. So I would strongly encourage you, don't turn around. Keep going straight ahead. And trusting the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You are an incredible God. You are an awesome God. And how You have provided our every single need. You've provided our need for salvation. You've provided our need on how to live this life. You've provided our need on how to um, be victorious in our fight with the evil one. You are faithful. You never leave us. We honor You. We worship You. And we cry now, Lord, oh, how we need you. We need you every day, every hour. May we constantly press into you and trust you in everything we do. If you
1: know this, let's sing together.
2: Lord, I come, I
1: confess.
2: I'll follow you. Jesus, you're my
1: hope and stay. So teach my song. So teach my song to rise to you. When temptation comes my way.
2: and When I cannot stand, I'll follow you. Jesus. You're my hope and stay When I cannot stand When I cannot stand I'll fall on you Jesus Jesus You're my hope
1: bless you guys thanks for coming this evening you're dismissed have a great rest of your week
0: thanks for joining us in the study of god's word with pastor carrie wacker we'd love to have you join us in person for worship each sunday morning at 9 a.m or 10 45 a.m we also meet wednesday nights at 6 30 p.m